0: Back, you're listening to In Situ Science. For each episode, we meet a different scientist, to find out what it is they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by population, community, and theoretical ecologist Alva Kurtzutter. Alva, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. I, I went with your, your short version of your name. I wasn't going to try the full <laughs> version. No, I think everyone is grateful for that. W- what is it again?
1: Oh my god! Uh, it's Ida Alva Rebecca Kutschdotter Carlson.
0: Okay, which which one of those is the first one? And <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, so um, essentially, it works like this: that on very official documents, I'm Ida Carlson, but I've always gone by Alva Kutschdotter. So
0: is that not very confusing? And
1: it wasn't confusing back home because then somehow Alva Kutschdotter was like pretty worked in. Um, but as I moved abroad to the States and to Australia, it also meant that even at the university, I would sometimes have to go as Ida Carlson. So my pigeonhole, my little post thingy, actually has two names on it, Ida Carlson (laughs) and Alva (laughs) (laughs) Kutstotter. Like they're both me, but it looks like it's for two people.
0: But the university knows that you're one person.
1: I hope so. (laughs) Not (laughs) sure about that.
0: Is this a a Swedish thing?
1: Mm, no, no, I totally blame my parents. Okay, that's all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they just like to hold on to lots of traditions and traditions. Yeah, and stuff that like is that. very true. All right, but scientifically, you published under as Alva
1: Kurtzdotter All right, yeah,
0: or Alva Kurtzdotter as as I like to,
1: as you like to say, pronounce yeah, it. Yeah, I wasn't gonna blame you for killing my name like that, but <laughs> now you bring it up. It'd <laughs> be
0: more offensive if I tried to pronounce it properly. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so, we're here at the University of New England, and you and I, we have lots of similarities and lots of differences, I think. As in, we're in the same lab. We're both in the insect ecology lab. We're both at similar career stages in terms of being postdoctoral research fellows. We both work on terrestrial insect behavior and ecology, but I feel like if you put up sort of professional Venn diagrams for us both. <laughs> We mightn't overlap a whole lot.
1: No, I don't think so. I like it's weird actually. We in a way we do work on very similar things and in some ways completely not at all.
2: (laughs) No, because I mean like
1: you describe yourself usually as a natural historian. Yes. More than an ecologist. Whereas I'm like ecologist with a capital E.
0: All right, I'm going to pull you up on that because <laughs> I've, I've spoken to lots of ecologists on this podcast. And I think when people think of ecologists, they probably think of someone walking through the forest, picking up bags of leaves, is wearing, you know, a wide brim hat in some sort of wet weather gear that someone un- ungodly shade of beige Uh <laughs> picking up soil samples or pitfall traps that kind of thing
1: yeah I totally see my uh, undergrad biology teacher Ronnie yes Uh, he fits that description perfectly (laughs) yeah I don't have a lot of the sort of empirical ecology cred you know I don't Mm. have that beige beige colored vest with many pockets (laughs) Um, I do have a pocket knife but still (laughs) Um, yeah no so no I agree like I'm not a rubber boot ecologist I'm a computer simulation ecologist. Okay. <coughs> but the way I see it, it, what defines an ecologist is not so much, at least not necessarily the methods we use. Mm. It's more the perspective we apply when looking at and trying to understand the natural world. Mm. So it's more about the questions we ask, more than how we choose to answer them.
0: So you described our rubber-boot be- beige person as, a, as an empiricist. Yeah. Can you can you describe what you mean by empiricist?
1: Yes. So m- I think most people don't necessarily think much about the concept of an empiricist because it's the default. Yeah. So to me, an empiricist is essentially someone who does observational work or experimental work, but with real things like real objects, real animals, real plants. Yeah. Whereas I, um, I work with mathematical equations and computer simulations. So sometimes we actually talk about it as in silico experiments. So oh. we still do experiments Yes. in a way, like we have different treatments, you could say. Yes. But instead of having like a study organism that I then expose to various treatments of some kind, I essentially have to create my animals and my ecosystem. Um, That's essentially what the equations are. Mm. They describe... Um, how different organisms interact. They describe the characteristics of organisms. So I don't work with, like, foxes and wolves or kangaroos or whatever you have, or the insects or the fishes or whatever. (laughs) Um, I could, but um, most of the work I've been doing, at least previously, have been pretty abstract. Mm. So my species have been characterized by their growth rate or their mortality and which other species they interact with. So it's been pretty abstract. But the point is that you can answer some questions this way that you actually would they couldn't or would be sort of like ethically challenged <laughs> to do. <laughs> like my whole thesis was about species extinctions. Mm. And I was like testing various aspects, like what would give you more or less extinctions. You don't really want to do that in a real yeah. system.
0: So l- let's, let's unpack this a bit. So we have our empiricists that would do things that we call in situ, and I guess, I'm probably biased, given the name of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> so that sort of research. But they're going out with measure, you know, rulers and, I don't know, bits of paper and pens and counting things. Yeah. So we have our, well, I guess our ex-situ scientists would be people doing things in the laboratory and sort of artificial settings, but still empirically. hmm And you're on the theoretical side of this strange spectrum yeah and you used a word i would never heard of before which i think is great in silico yeah is that as in like in a silicon computer chip exactly that?
2: yeah exactly <laughs> that's no that's exactly great. what it relates yeah
0: all right so you're conducting experiments and getting data in d- digitalness. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes all right so i um, want can we take this through a hypothetical example of how you might do this. I mean, I should clarify you're not making little CGI beetles run around. Like, you're not actually creating no. things, but you are simulating things in a, in a mathematical if way. If this was
1: an American movie, I would have little yes. simulated beetles running around on my screen. I wish I had, but.
0: that 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 glass touchscreen where you pull boxes in to do i'm waiting for that time to come
1: (laughs) but no uh, it's a bit more dry than that yeah Uh, no so essentially um, so a lot of what i've been working with has been predator prey interactions Mm -hmm. so in a very simple case or classic case we have one predator one prey Mm -hmm. Um, you can describe their population dynamics um as functions of some kind of like intrinsic growth rate like assuming some kind of resource availability they will have some kind of intrinsic growth rate the population will grow mm-hmm. and then the predator will feed on the prey so that's of course a mortality imposed on the prey mm-hmm. and the predator actually doesn't have an intrinsic growth rate because it needs to eat to produce offspring mm. okay, so and that's since we're modeling that predator prey interaction explicitly we say the predator doesn't have an intrinsic growth rate it, ha- it only has like positive growth if it eats, and then it has an interesting mortality instead. And this sounds so simplistic, but even with that very simplistic mathematical description of real population dynamics, you can actually replicate um, the kind of um, population cycles you get when you have a pair of species interacting tightly like this.
0: All right, I'm going to jump in and disagree that it sounds simplistic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's pretty much one of the (laughs) simplest species interaction models I can possibly put up.
0: I'm going (laughs) to play the role of your your old Aunt Jean at at the family barbecue, uh, trying to figure out what it is lovely little Alva does uh, for work. Okay. All right. Oh, g'day Jean, how's it going? Lovely to see you again. Would you like a slice of pavlova? Always. <laughs> Is this working for you? Will this help explain things? Is <laughs>
1: no, it makes me want to eat pavlova.
0: All right. All right. Forget it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So we have... All right. We're looking at simulating interactions between organisms, ones that are being eaten, ones that are doing the eating. So our, we have, I guess, an equation essentially that sums up these interactions. So we have our prey items... And these, I guess, would be the part of the equation that has positive values to it. And then, in a sense, we have the other part of our equation, which is the predators, which would exert sort of negative values onto those prey items, right?
1: Yes, that would be true.
0: Okay. And, and it's obviously more complicated than, you know, one prey equals one and one predator equals minus one.
1: Yes, it's well, <laughs> depends on how complex you want to do You could make it that easy, that simple if you want to. Okay. And under some special conditions, that would actually be enough to describe the dynamics. Most yeah. of the time, it wouldn't be, though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you could essentially stick any characteristics you want into these models. Your, you know, The negative pressures that your predators impose would de- on things like I don't know their movement speed or their body size or things like that
1: yeah for example so that's like essentially yeah so thing things like the way I see it is this that the equations that I use is just a way of describing um, the processes that act in nature mm-hmm. and whereas an empirical ecologist might observe them measure them maybe do some statistics on them but what then probably mostly uh, describe them verbally Mm. what these equations do is essentially they just describe those processes in a different language and that Mm. is mathematics and yeah and i just like that language because it's incredibly precise
0: Mm. i mean i often describe the way i approach science almost as like storytelling Even when I'm telling people how to write papers, I'd say you write it like a story with a beginning and an end and formulate it that way. And it's almost like in my head the different uh, ecological interactions I'm describing are little characters in a play doing different things. And I can see in a way that the equations you use to summarize ecology are just much, much more succinct stories. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Right. Very much so. Where well, you can describe... And something that I would take two pages to describe, you can have with X equals Y, you know.
1: Yeah, sometimes, though, it will take as much time to read the equation as it will t- take to read those two pages. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Some
1: of those equations are pretty complex. But yeah, but yeah. That's so
0: why do we need both approaches?
1: Oh, I'm going to upset people now. Uh, <laughs> well, one reason is... That most ecologists, a lot of the ecologists I made are pretty horrible with words. Mm. So I've been brought up by. Um, okay, so my mother is a professor of business law. Okay. And when you are working with the law in various ways, language, like the written and spoken language, that is your main tool.
2: Mm.
1: And it means that you have be have to be incredibly correct and precise and clear when you express things because otherwise you know it's gonna go to shit, (laughs) pretty much if you're writing a contract or you're stipulating like a new law or something Mm. right so she groomed me in how to write which in ecology is sometimes a benefit and sometimes not because Mm. it means that when i read something i read what people actually wrote (laughs) <laughs> I don't read what they mean.
2: <laughs> yeah. And a lot
1: of people are much better than I am and sort of like interpreting what they actually meant. But I read what they wrote. Yes. And <laughs> unfortunately, there's way too often that those things are not the same. And it's quite often that people don't seem to realize that the way they are expressing it things, like their verbal logic simply isn't that great, mm-hmm. honestly. So when they describe processes verbally, it might look pretty good but then when you like scratch the surface a bit it doesn't hold up Mm. and sometimes when you just use verbal logic it it's not that easy to see that the process you describe will not play out the way you think they will and there's a classic for me a, a classic example anyway about coexistence and so there's this single intermediate disturbance hypothesis you know this one, right? No. Please no. describe
0: this for me. Oh
1: man. <laughs> um so
0: asie Jean is listening at home and I needs know, and they probably
1: this. didn't take ecology class. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> essentially ecologists have been going out, making observations, and they have observed that if they find an ecosystem that has very little disturbance to it, species richness is not that high if it's a
0: nice stable environment
1: yep doesn't
0: there's there's no cyclones going through fine there's lots and lots of different things coexisting in the one spot
1: no we actually you will not necessarily find a lot of things because what will happen is that the most dominant the best competitors will outcompete the other ones okay so if you have something very stable you tend to get lower diversity okay the same is true if you have very high disturbance like right after the cyclone there isn't really much alive Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have intermediate levels of disturbance, like either in intensity or in frequency, that's where people at least think they find the highest diversity. Mm -hmm. Um, So essentially, that was like a kind of observation people had made, so they put forth this intermediate disturbance hypothesis. Um, It's so compelling in a way that it kind of took root without having a lot of very strict evidence. Mm -hmm. And when people started actually looking at it, it sometimes was supported sometimes not and it had also to do with how the heck do you define like low versus high disturbance Mm -hmm. but anyway there is definitely something to that and so there's like a pattern we can observe in nature that there is something to that it seems to be that intermediate levels do kind of promote um higher diversity and it is very compelling because if we think about ecological processes like competition as I said previously, if you have a very stable environment, the, the strongest competitors will eventually, given time, outcompete the less competitive ones, the less strong ones. And the idea was if you have intermediate levels of disturbance, um, that would essentially set back that sort of those processes. So like if if you're getting to a point where the strongest competitors seem to be like doing a bit better, like starting to dominate, and then you have something that like disturbs the system that like sets things back mm. a bit so like it's more even, like they get more even abundances, to all the different species.
0: Like like Thanos coming in and wiping out half of all life, you know?
1: Pretty much. Yeah. yeah.
0: Got it. Just like to relate things back to Popular films, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> which, which I'm a great fan of. I yeah. love them.
1: But the point is that that verbal logic, what is very compelling and seems to like, yeah, that makes sense, mm. right? If you describe that in math, you'll see that no, that's not how it's going to work out. Okay. It's not going to play out. The only thing that happens is that the competitive exclusion takes longer, but it still mm. happens. So if you have more disturbance, it's going to mean it takes longer for the strongest competitor to outcompete the weaker ones, mm-hmm. but it's still going to happen. hmm. And if you do the math and you try a few different things out, you can show what actually needs, what's actually needed to avoid competitive exclusion is that when a species is, is rare, so like you're the weaker competitor, you've become pretty rare now because of competition, for you to s- bounce back means that there has to be some kind of pressure, like it is competition or some predation pressure or something that is actually that becomes less strong, that weakens when you become rare. So Mm. you get an escape from that. So essentially what needs to happen is that the strongest competitor, when it reaches high abundances, something is pushing back even stronger than it was when it was at lower abundances. And the species that is rare and it's at low abundance, it has to experience some kind of uh, reduction in that pressure. So there has to be that kind of non-linear density dependent, like population density dependent uh, feedbacks. Mm. That's what you need. And the thing is like that... Would be hard to how should we, to discover just using verbal logic, mm. but with math, you just like you, pl- you, you formulate the equation to describe these dynamics, you run them you, like you do the math, you like you solve for them and see what happens over a long time, mm. and then you can actually see what is actually necessary to get coexistence of species
0: so we have this idea that an intermediarily disturbed habitat would have more different species. And if I, as an empiricist, was going to test this, I would go out, find habitats with low levels of disturbance, intermediate levels, and high levels of disturbance, and look at species richness, richness across them. And I might find that, oh, it actually doesn't match what we'd expect with verbal logic. You, as a theoretical ecologist, would actually uh, summarize these interactions mathematically and run the simulation, and you might come to the same conclusion, but I guess the benefit of you running the numbers is that you can actually look at the processes that lead to the outcome. Yeah. Whereas I, as an empiricist, would just look at the species richness in these different areas, go and say, oh, it doesn't match. Yeah, exactly. The hypothesis.
1: And I can hopefully tell you why.
0: Yes. (laughs) Because you've got the numbers there and you can look at how they're behaving. Yeah, exactly. And you could also go in and tweak the numbers and essentially run the simulation in different ways and see what happens.
1: Yeah, so that's definitely one of the pros of doing theoretical ecology, that once you have essentially sort of created your ecosystem, like you have formulated your equations, you implemented them in the code, Mm -hmm. and it works. Um, Then you can run so many different experiments mm. like if you're an empirical ecologist like you would dream of the number of replicates that i easily can get and the number of treatments i can easily get mm. like just now recently i sent off some simulations to the supercomputer center in sweden actually <laughs> um and i think i had something like around 250 different sort of treatments or what we sell scenarios
2: mm.
1: and each had 10,000 replicates <laughs> <laughs> and you're just laughing because that is just not possible. Yeah. When you do actual experiments with animals yeah. or actually empirical experiments. It's just not possible.
0: Does that ever get s- criticized? Do you ever get sort of blowback from other ecologists that look at what you've done and go well it's it's not real though? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: totally. Um I think it it's kind of dual actually. It's like so a lot of people find it a lot of other ecologists find it super interesting. Mm. And some just find it completely uninteresting mm. because they think it has nothing to do with reality. Yeah. And I I kind of feel like... The people who get super excited, I feel sometimes don't quite see the, the caveats that we do have mm. doing this kind of work sometimes. Um. And the people who just think it has nothing to offer, essentially, I think really don't understand um i think they see it from the wrong perspective essentially it seems to me that they only think that the only (sighs) valuable research is done when you measure something on real entities like Mm. plants and animals for some reason they don't seem to think that testing or generating hypotheses in a very controlled and strict way is valuable which to me is a bit strange because if you have essentially if you have if you look at it like if you have if a spectrum of realism mm-hmm. with like doing obs- just observational studies in the field as like the most real thing like the most realistic because you're not manipulating anything you're just observing mm. and then you have like experiments in the field experiments in the lab and then eventually you have like simulations and theoretical ecology Mm. which is definitely the least realistic i agree Uh, but if you also you have also a different spectrum which is the amount of control you have Mm. over your system and your experiment and then doing what i do i have the highest level of control you could possibly achieve Mm. and then going all the way through like a little bit less but still a lot in the experiments like you do in the lab and then the less in the field and then observations you like you have no control you're just observing Mm. and to me that's really important because you I don't think you can ever test anything as strictly and as well controlled as you can do if you just do it with equations and simulations Um, so that I think is really useful for both generating and testing hypotheses and preferably that should be done in conjunction with empirical Mm. work, like it should be done very closely together. And to me, oh, this is pet peeve. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I really think that there's too much theoretical, theoretical ecology that is being done too far away from any empirical ecology. Um, and there's definitely too much empirical ecology being done with too little connection to theory
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and i feel like the theoretical world is trying a bit harder to approach the empirical (laughs) side of things than the empirical side of things is trying to approach the theoretical
0: (laughs) yes i I would agree with that i think the empirical world's a little bit intimidated by the theoretical world (laughs) yeah (laughs) no
1: and i I could totally see that i worked with theoretical physicists (laughs) and sometimes (laughs) they're like I love working with them and, and also applied mathematicians. But mm. I'm like, it has got to be so much easier to go from that direction into ecology than go from like ecology and go to like theoretical physics.
0: Oh yeah. I feel like if you had a nutso uh astrophysics mathematician or something, they could just take a sabbatical into ecology for a couple of weeks and just pump out nature papers every night again. Yeah, <laughs> yes and
1: no. I and some of them do. <laughs> <laughs> some of them do. Although sometimes they are also the ones who kind of do the kind of theoretical ecology that is the most removed Mm. from any empirical ecology
0: yeah because you could get numbers to behave however you like yes really but you have to justify why your numbers are behaving the way they are based on actual real world exactly
1: and that's the crux of it Mm. That of course i can make up a complete toy system that behaves however i want to Mm. but that would really not say anything about the real world yeah so that's why um thinking very carefully about the equations you use to describe ecological system it's really important because (laughs) the thing is like as i say i create my own system that i then do experiments on Mm. so i can only get the kind of results that i essentially allow for when Mm. i set it up yeah um it's it's of, like the dynamics are so complex that i cannot foresee necessarily the outcome yeah um of sort of like the system like if i i set up a set of equations that describe some species interactions and i want to look at which of these will persist for a thousand years which will have the higher abundance whatever i cannot necessarily foresee that outcome mm-hmm. from the how i formulate the equations but what i should definitely make sure it seems realistic is that how i describe the processes Hmm. that those are realistic and then whatever comes out comes out
2: (laughs) Mm.
0: yeah i guess i started off trying to get my head around this stuff almost phrasing it like well these models are very very refined hypotheses and they're describing interactions numerically but it's a little bit more than that because it's using numbers you're showing whether interactions are even mathematically possible in the first place so it's also testing hypotheses at the same time
1: yeah actually my latest paper I had troubles with that because I I was doing both and I was like how do I actually frame this paper
2: (laughs) it
0: seems kind of
1: circular to me but it's also not it's also like the benefit of the whole thing (laughs) and we do need
0: people to sort of dance in the middle between empirical and theoretical ecology because I i feel like I'm too far down the empirical spectrum that when I need to r- get my head around these theoretical papers, I'll read the introduction, get to the methods, and then just skip ahead, assume the equations are all fine, and assume all their assumptions are fine, assume <laughs> they know what they're doing, and then read the discussion and see what their models have shown and just go, yeah, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm very intimidated by the equations themselves. And even, and like I I try and I get to like the first step of establishing what the first value of b equals and then by step 4 I've just given up.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I I'm I just had a discussion with one of my colleagues like, yesterday, and I was like, please provide a conceptual description of the equation in the methods, and don't just leave the <laughs> equation and describe all the parameters, what they are, because, like, people need a conceptual description, dude. <laughs> and and he's like, you know, there's no space. Hmm. I'm like, make space.
2: <laughs>
1: because, no, and, like, I I understand that completely, and one of my, um, I guess one of my advisors, when I was a PhD student, he was sometimes... Because he was he was a mathematician to begin with, mm. and he's now a theoretical ecologist, and he was sometimes a bit frustrated about the fact that it seemed that when ecologists read papers with equations in them, they were seemed to assume that you should be able to read an equation as fast as you read a line of text.
2: Mm. So but when you no. read, no,
1: they they take more time, mm. um, especially if you're not used to reading them. And think about it as. Like you're reading a text in a language you know, and suddenly there's a line of text in a language you know not so well, mm. so you're going to have to spend more time on that line, and you're going to have to maybe look up a few things to actually understand it yeah and um considering time constraints, <laughs> I understand that people don't always take that time, yeah. And I think that's fine if you're just like, this is an interesting result. and But, you know, I'll store it in my head for later. It's just one piece of information among others. But if this is going to be like a main like paper in, for your work, like a main reference for your work, then you really should take the time to like try and understand the equations in the sense of how do they actually describe reality? What? How do they actually say that these are the processes we're modeling and we're assuming these processes look like this? Because mm. if you don't agree with that, you probably don't agree. Like the results won't mean anything to you. Mm. You see?
0: You kind of need to... F- if you can't understand it yourself, find someone who can hold your hand and take it totally. through it. And say this bit here in the brackets summarizes this yes. interaction. This bit is underneath a line because it does this to the... Procedure, whatever, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I actually absolutely. would recommend playing Dungeons and Dragons, and I think it helped helped me get my head around around <laughs> equations. Around, yes, because oh, I know I've played
1: Dungeons and Dragons, so you're gonna have to explain this to me. How well, the heck does that help? I haven't
0: played help? a lot either, but <laughs> so there's parts of a, you know equation where you would say you know going back to our predator prey example, you would say that a predator will encounter a prey at this probability level and you give a fraction or a percentage mm-hmm. and I never quite grasped that until I played Dungeons and Dragons a couple of times and realised that it all comes down to dice rolls <laughs> <laughs> and that it's not even if you have a your really powerful sword it's still down to chance and you can roll a 12-sided die and there's somewhere in the rule books that say well you have to get you know, over nine for it to be a successful hit. Below mm. nine, it's unsuccessful. And that affects the outcome of your simulation of this fantasy world. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> Which is essentially true. what a model is doing. It's yeah. throwing in these probability values that if you run it different times, it will have s- could have different results because it could go one way or the other.
1: Yeah, now, I, now what I'm thinking is like, I want to make a Monte Carlo simulation, which is essentially it's just like a simulation that just deals with like, Dice rolls. Yeah. And like, I could, I could actually model Dungeons and Dragons, like one of the setups, one of the games you play. Yeah. And, like This is the most likely outcome. Yeah. It surely somebody's like done that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Surely someone must have. Would
0: summarize the game of Dungeons and Dragons, but I yeah. think
1: there's a strong enough correlation between like people who play Dungeons and Dragons and who are probably doing like IT stuff and stuff. <laughs> I'm going out on a limb here.
0: Yeah. So s-
1: someone surely has done that.
0: I know, I, I know a dungeon master. You have to get her over and, <laughs> and try this out. <laughs> oh, so many possibilities. So, what are you currently trying to model?
1: Mm, well, I'm like, I'm so involved in so many projects right now. <laughs>
0: um, As in the one you're doing here at UNE. Oh, that one. What's your project here <laughs> you're doing? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that. Um, is actually oh, th- 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 seriously, it is so great. Because um, <laughs> I have been working kind of hardish uh, trying to get myself from the very abstract theoretical ecology world mm-hmm. to that little point in middle. Where you said we were dancing. <laughs> 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 so that's what I want to do. Yes. Um so where you sort of like you're really you're doing a theoretical ecology, but very close uh, in conjunction with doing empirical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um so that's what I'm doing, and I'm working on dung beetles. Mm-hmm. And we are going to formulate um a model for dung beetles. That describes what's going to happen with uh the distribution and the abundance of some of the Australian dung beetle species um, under scenarios of increased and more variable temperatures.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's a we're having some climate change scenarios in mind. Mm-hmm. And what is really exciting about this for me is that we are actually applying at least like three, we're like combining three different modeling frameworks that are all very closely linked to um, empirical data. So we have to do a number of experiments to get the data for the models, not just to get like values for the parameters, like what numbers to actually put in, mm-hmm. but some of it also need to make some experiments to decide um, what the mathematical formulation, what the equation for some of these models should actually look like. Mm. And to me, that is really exciting because I want ecology to become more predictive. So we can actually use ecological models to make predictions about real ecosystems and to understand them and to also understand what's gonna happen when conditions change.
0: So I, as an empiricist, can go out find all the dung beetles in Australia I, I, you know hypothetically and map where they are mm-hmm. right now you're essentially trying to summarize uh dung beetle distribution in a way where you can then tweak that model where you change things like temperature as a way of simulating what the world might be like in the future to then simulate where dung beetles are and aren't
1: exactly and one of the main points that in order to do that Mm -hmm. you actually need to understand why the current distributions look like they do why do you find this particular tangible species in this location and not Mm. that one and the models we're uh, going to use um they're like they're working across a level like a lot of different scales so like we're working with something called dynamic energy budgets that really describe what's going on inside an individual so given the amount of food it gets Mm -hmm. like how does it allocate that to things like bodily growth to reproduction to maturation and how that also depends on temperature for example Mm -hmm. and then we can link that to a model that um scales those individual processes like so it takes like the model that has like the individual processes you take the outcome from that, and what does that mean on population level
2: mm-hmm. so that's
1: another model that sort of scales that up for you, and that model will also be able to take into account species interactions because possibly I'm biased because i been mean, working a lot with species interactions, but i don't i don't actually don't think I'm biased I think it's true that uh, <laughs> species <laughs> interactions are very important in determining species dis- like the species distributions
2: mm.
1: and I think that's a lot of good evidence for that. And that is like to me been a, like a holy grail for like species distribution modeling. Like uh, most species distribution modeling is still just looking at one species at a time and mm. assuming that climate and other sort of more physical, abiotic, non-biological mm. factors, are the ones that determine a species distribution. And if you if you look at um, trying to do those kind of models for invasive species it doesn't work like if you use um sort of like if you look at the original uh distribution like the original location that's a species that used to be in um, the americas Mm -hmm. and you look at where you find it and what climate did you have there and now it's in australia and like okay so the climate where you found in america happens to be in i don't know new south wales Mm -hmm. in australia so it should only be found in new south wales and you'll find that this freaking invasive species is found also in places where you would not expect Mm -hmm. it to be
0: And to to me, that
1: really indicates, among other things, species interactions.
0: If I can bring this back to pop culture references. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. Is this like an Inception dream within a dream type of modeling where essentially you have your models that are trying to predict interactions of individual organisms and their physiology and what they can and can't do as individuals? And those models can then sit within larger models looking at the interactions of those individuals with other individuals of the same species and they fit into other larger models of species distributions and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's a a little bit like Russian dolls.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to guess that this is now beyond the kind of models that you can run with a calculator. And we're talking about actual computation of big nutty things.
1: Yeah, this is going to be, at the end, probably a pretty slow, large model. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: how how slow is slow are we talking like 30 minutes
1: well if you want to run like a number of replicates that is slow like (laughs) 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 yeah no i'm not sure yet because Mm. um these are models are new to me um and i think The type of model that's gonna take the most time is what they call individual based models, Mm. which essentially means that as you scale up from the individual to the population, you don't just like describe generally the overall population behavior. You actually still describe each and every individual and Mm. then just like count the number of individuals and that's your population size. So if you have like a thousand individuals in population, that's a thousand equations. Okay,
0: bringing (laughs) it back to pop culture, is this like where in the Lord of the Rings movies, <laughs> when they had to do the big battle scenes, they made simulated armies and they could simulate the behavior of an individual soldier swinging a sword around within that army and then stuck them all together and got the behavior of an army of people swinging swords around. It sounds... I have no CGI idea what they actually world.
1: use for that, but this sounds exactly like what I'm doing, uh, minus the swords. Yeah. yeah. And
0: again, if it was a movie, you would have it animation of lots of lots of dung beetles running around. Yep. <laughs> Interacting, doing things. Exactly. But instead you end up with a graph of, I don't know.
1: Population size over time. Yeah. <laughs> and where in space they are. <laughs> and that's going to be a lot of work just to get that.
0: So when you're approaching a problem that's this big, I and mean, this mm-hmm. numerically and conceptually complex, where does one start? Do you start with let's figure out what a dung beetle equals. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Right now, right now we're starting with just the individual level processes. Uh, so these dynamic entry budget models, hmm. which is going to be the foundation for all of the rest. Yeah. And that is already a pretty big project in and of itself and really exciting because this model has been around since the seventies. Um, but it was uh, developed by someone who worked in the aquatic sciences, the aquatic ecology. And just for that reason, it has been used more in aquatic ecology than terrestrial ecology. Mm-hmm. So they have a database now, like for all the different species they ha- they have actually applied this model to. Um, and I think that database has hundreds of species. Mm-hmm. And I think somewhere between 10 and 20 are insects. <laughs> All (laughs) right. There's there's one beetle, (laughs) which is our supervisor, our advisor, the boss, the head of our lab, Nigel Andrew. um, He made a model for one dung beetle. And that's... So essentially, that's Mm. all there is for beetles. Yeah. And going into this project, um, I would like to develop that model further because there are some aspects of the current model formulation that might not really... describe the biology of a dung beetle very well. Mm-hmm. And so since someone has, uh, no one has actually tested um, the model formulation to see if it actually describes, well, what actually a dung beetle does. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the first step that we're doing.
0: Yeah, you kind of get, well, I often get the impression that models are essentially applicable wherever. Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> but it's essentially like I don't know if I had a, a a recipe for an apple pie and then just replaced apples with bananas and assumed I would get a banoffee tart at the end. Like it's Is that reference getting anywhere? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> sometimes
1: people do that. Yeah. Sometimes it works. Yeah. Like you could probably ha- make it have an apple pie recipe and then you know switch out apples for i don't know plums maybe <laughs> i really don't cook a yeah. lot but there's probably some <laughs> other fruit that would work fairly well <laughs> but i don't think banana would be one of them no and that's the problem you have to um, think about what you're replacing yeah. is it is it close enough to an apple or is it not
0: i don't know if my metaphors are helping with this or I, l- I like it more them confusing
1: <laughs> i like them actually <laughs> No, but no, exactly. So that's another pet peeve of mine, that um, people sometimes use models without actually thinking about it. Someone else used them before, so I can probably use it for this as well. Mm. A little happy-go-lucky. And um, again, since people aren't always great at describing the models conceptually or what assumptions they actually rely on or essentially what kind of... Almost kind of like what assumptions they more like imply... Mm -hmm. Um, since that's not necessarily very easy to read out of the equation if you're not used to working with this kind of stuff and since the people who are used to working with this kind of stuff don't want to write out all these assumptions because to them it's clear anyway Mm. there's a lot of like uh, applications that maybe shouldn't be done (laughs) 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 and also like and i i I feel like i've been definitely been guilty of this as well because there are some classic equations out there describing um predator to prey interactions in large food webs, and I've been applying them happily. And for the very kind of theoretical stuff I used to do, the very abstract stuff, I think it's, you know, fair enough. But there is a push towards taking these models and applying them to the real world, which I think is great. Mm. But I think in order to do that, you might have to take a few steps back and actually look at how are these equations derived in the first place? What are they sort of assuming about the processes? and is this is still how I want to describe it because there's some of these equations are like developed you know fifty years ago. Mm. maybe we want to update them mm. <laughs> you know and um yeah there's been there's been some sort of like a little bit of testing on these models against data It's not nowhere near enough, there's like a handful of papers mm-hmm. um, and there's even fewer that actually go back and like have a hard look at the derivations and thinking about what actually this makes sense now that we want to apply it to the real world more generally speaking and we want to parameterize them so that's the big crux when you want to take these sort of like more theoretical models and apply them to the real world you can't just take any numbers anymore because previously mm. we've been like I'll just set the interspecific competition so like the self-regulation of species to 1 and then all of the other sort of parameters in the model are like just relative to that mm. so as long as like the numbers you put into the model makes sense from ecological point of view but also relative just inside the model mm. that's fine so like it's as long as it's relative it's all about the relative that's, yep. that's fine but if you want to describe the dynamics of the real world it you can't just have parameters that are okay like relative each other <laughs> they actually have to be okay relative to the real world mm. so then like the number that you put at like um, at the self-regulation maybe that shouldn't be one anymore maybe that has needs to be something else because in the real world it is something else mm. so then the absolute value suddenly matters a lot as well yeah and that has been like one of the main obstacles to actually taking these models and applying them to the real world because it's really really hard to get those numbers it takes a lot of experiments unless you can hack it and the way people are trying to hack it these days, and so instead of like measuring everything directly, they try to relate it to some some trait you can measure, and body size has been like the main trait, so like you measure the body size of a species, so, like you measure the body size of a prey species on a predator species, and just based on that, you can say something about how strongly they will interact, and that holds really well for some ecosystems and mm. really not so well <laughs> for some other ecosystems
2: mm.
1: and I think it is like. some of the stuff that's happening there when trying to parameterize those models using these sort of like this trait based parameterization. I think that's where we probably should have gone back a few steps and looked at the derivations a bit more closely. Mm. Like why should a particular species trait give you the interaction strength of something? Like why should it? Mm. So what process is it really that this trait matters for? And maybe you need to break down the equation that describes species interactions into more parts, like more steps. So like some traits will matter for this step, some traits will matter for that step. And we're actually working on a paper that does that right now.
0: So to get a model that's built with real world values as opposed to assumed values that make Mm. nice equations, you need to head out into the field and and dance with the empiricists a bit. Yeah, definitely. When does that happen for you? When do you go out and get elbow deep in Kai dung?
1: Well, until now, it, it didn't happen. Okay. So <laughs> now it's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like there's a progression, like, for a theoretical ecologist. Either you just work with your equations and your simulations with the assumed numbers, or you use someone else's data, hmm. which is what I did, like, after my PhD. And now I'm to the point where I can collect my own data.
0: All right. And need but surely you've been out and done field work and stuff before, right?
1: A little bit, but not a lot. Okay. I've essentially been, like, helping people out. I, I've done some interesting stuff, like, you know, diving in this really deep cold lake in Sweden in the middle of winter. Mm-hmm. And this lake is so cold that it still has species in it that was, like, there at when, the, when the glaciers, you know withdrew <laughs> from after the ice age. No, so it's like the glacial relics. Yeah. You can still find them in the lake because it's that cold and we were diving in the middle of winter. So you could like come up of that cold lake and you wander in the snow and sit in around the campfire for lunch and then you go back into the cold water. Um so I've done some things like that. Mm-hmm. Um some other things too. I've been digging up frogs in Spain for some reason just happened.
0: They, but these, this was for data collection, not There's just also data collection. for the fun of it? No, it was a data collection. <laughs> we, we needed.
1: Uh, <laughs> I was helping some people who uh, were doing more of a behavioral experiment. So mm-hmm. we helped them dig uh, both for the frogs, so they could have some frogs to use, mm-hmm. and also to do like the experimental setup in the field. I'm always interested to hear
0: how people, f- uh, r- uh, how people react to how dodgy sometimes fieldwork is, <laughs> and <that> the tools <laughs> you use are like sticks and hot glue guns and well, you <laughs> I use a lot of play-doh in my film work you know but you can use these very simple tools to generate these yeah i don't numbers. i don't have a
1: problem with that kind of dodginess i have yeah. a very big problem with some other types of dodginess of empirical data such as, as such as um
0: qualitative data oh
1: my god no it's even quantitative data but it's like i i'm gonna call this semi-quantitative data
2: mm.
1: so for example working with insects like terrestrial well oh, almost all of them are anyway insects and uh getting abundance data for them um even if you're working in the same type of habitat depending on which group of insects you're trying to look at you will have to need different methods mm-hmm. to use different methods to actually estimate their abundance yeah um but then if you want to describe the entire insect community then you have, like, for some of these organisms, you have this type of abundance measure. Mm-hmm. And for some of the other ones, you have this type of abundance measure. And you know what? That wouldn't be a problem if what was actually was estimated was population size per unit area, a.k.a. population density.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But usually those abundance measures are just like, we had 50 in this trap, and in that other field, we had forty. So clearly there's more in this field than in other field. That is true, but you actually have no idea how many do you actually have? What is the population size? You have no idea. The abundance data people get from the field is not truly quantitative. And since that also means that if you use different methods for like estimating the amounts of different organisms, and since none of them are truly quantitative, you can't actually say, what the insect community actually looks like.
0: See, I'm fine with that because <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I like uh, wading around in gray zones. I like there being a little bit of mystery and romance. And yeah, I don't know how many ants are in this <laughs> panic and I'm okay with that. All yeah, I, see, all I know is how many fell into my pitfall trap and if that's the best we can do, that's great.
1: No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> not if you want the quality to actually be able to predict shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, like, th- like, for the things people have been doing with this data, this data is fine. If you want to just, like, th- th- you want like be able to say, like, you're looking at this particular organism, you use the same way of measuring its abundance wherever you're doing it, you can definitely say there's more of this organism here than there.
2: Mm. You
1: know? And you can say that today there's more than it was yesterday. You know? Yeah. Like, that's fine. Because you just want to see like trends over time or over space, you know? Mm. Perfect. If you actually, (laughs) you can actually even predict what's going to happen with it, because in a way you're just predicting what would you find in your trap, Mm. not the actual population size. So you can actually make predictions about where would you find more or less? When when in time would you find more or less? But if you want to do this with multiple species, you need to have a common currency.
0: Mm.
1: And a common currency is a population density. And but that's where it gets really tricky. So,
0: and that's something that, in my head, might just never be achievable. Oh, I think that is so bullshit. Some traps, you ah, know, so some insects no, you need to no. catch them with a butterfly net. Some you need to catch with a malaise trap. There's, you're always going to be limited to the species characteristics, and you can't possibly have a.
1: No, I I agree that you might always have to use different uh methods to mm. estimate the abundance but i think that abundance should be truly quantitative <laughs> and mm. and i realized that it probably would take more effort or some technical innovation <laughs> but i do think that is possible when you said like i don't think that's ever going to be possible i just think about this quote from what was it like the head of the what do you call the place where they have the patents
0: the patent office? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, like, let's
1: say you have, like, there was, like, the national patent office or if it's the gold patent office. Yeah. I had no idea. And, like, the boss, the head of one of those patent offices um, back in the early 1900s sometime, like 1920, 1930, said essentially, everything that could possibly be invented has already been invented. <laughs> and I, I I, think time has proved him wrong. mm and to me, when people go like, oh, we'll never be able to measure that. We will never be able to predict that. i um, But like, people, ecology is like 100 years old. <laughs> How much <laughs> could physics predict when it was 100 years old? Nothing. Mm. It was pointing at stars and naming them. That's what it was doing. I mean...
0: It's very easy for you to say, sitting behind your computer.
1: <laughs> well, I'm I'm not till saying that all of this is achievable right here, right now. Yeah. But I am saying that unless we try, mm. it's definitely not going to happen. Yeah. I can also quote Wayne Gretzky on this, but <laughs> hockey is not very big in Australia, so maybe I just I just won't.
0: I played it as a teenager. I get it. Don't worry. Right. <laughs> he also said, "You know, practice your backhand," so you know, feeling. <laughs>
1: I, I was thinking about the quote where it says like pretty much like the only goal you'll never even have any chance of scoring is the one you didn't make a shot for.
0: Yeah. Pretty much. That is All
1: horrible. That's right. not what he said, but that was the and of
0: it. All right. We finally got over pop culture references and we're moving into sports references. Mm-hmm. I think we've, we've hit peak metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> is, is
1: this one of your most metaphorical um, interviews so far or is that this is what you always do?
0: No, this is definitely uh, a lot more philosophical than most of them. But as I said, I have this bias towards chatting with other empiricists. So often I just sit here with someone and say, aren't butterflies nets great? (laughs) (laughs) All right.
1: Yeah, you need more philosophy in your life, James.
0: Yeah, I do. You do. You do. (laughs) Right. Well, you'll you'll have to. Next time I get a modeling paper, I'm going to go find you and get you to hold my hand and take me through it and help me dance in the middle even though i don't dance
1: excellent i'll make you draw stuff on the whiteboard all right it'll be
0: fun love it thanks so much for coming on the podcast yeah.
1: <laughs> thank you for having me
0: no worries thank you guys for listening you can check out more podcasts at in or on social media at in science don't forget if you want to hear more of these you can support us on patreon go to